Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning. Welcome to church, uh, all of you that are tuning uh, from home. Uh, if this is your first time to the church, my name is Andre. Welcome to our online gathering. Uh, you know, in better times, we will have loved to meet you here uh, in our hall. Uh, but, you know, we are, uh, you know, uh, as Pastor Janice mentioned, uh, pausing our in-person gatherings with the hopes that we will be able to resume come the month of June. But for today, uh, we will make do with a live stream. Looking forward to meeting you in person someday. Well, uh, but before we get moving on, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Come on, mamas. That's so good. I'm so glad that uh, you managed to receive that lovely gift uh, from our church. Happy Mother's Day. I pray that you would have a blessed day celebrating uh, with uh, loved ones, with family members. Today is your day. And today, uh, it's also uh, Amy's first Mother's Day. And so it's a very special day for us. And uh, we will be uh, also... uh, you know, at the same time, celebrating uh, Sage's 100th day on planet Earth. 100th days. You know, my personal thoughts and theories with regards to these, like, you know, one month celebration, 100 day celebration, is that it's more for the parents than the baby. It's more for us to celebrate, like, yay, we, we did it. We, we haven't messed it up yet. <laughs> She's still intact and alive and well. And, and so, yay, Andre, Amy, day. Right. That's, that's, that's how I view it. You know, but these past few months of parenting has been really interesting. Right? It's lots of learning journeys, and um, I'm sure you parents uh, out there will agree. There's a lot of spiritual parallels even in parenting, right? You really understand more about the heart of God, the kingdom, the way uh, God sees us you know, through our parenting, and uh, no doubt it's been a fruitful journey. I'll share a story uh, to start off our time together. But yes, the last few months have been uh, just... Filled with adventure, you know, poop on the table, poop on the sheets, poop on the floor, poop on the sofa, poop on the shirts. Many, many poop. But, uh, but anywho, uh, let me just share a couple of stories, you know. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just share one in the interest of time. Well, one month into uh, Sage's life on Earth, you know, she was uh, still learning, uh, you know, the motor function surrounding her hand. And I remember uh, that one night, you know, we were showering her and we put her on the, on the bed, you know, and just thinking that she would just lie still as babies should. She would just lie still and just wait for us to be ready. And so we put her down and she was lying down and we had her hands free. She wasn't wearing mittens. And, uh, you know, she started like, you know, moving about, moving about. And, uh, you know, we, you know we, we had our eyes, you know, just focused on other stuff for just a moment. And she reached out uh, to, her, to her head and she grabbed a lockful of her hair and she started yanking it. And so she pulled, at, she pulled at it, and of course, she let out this big scream. She was like, ah! And because she was so stressed out by what was happening, she pulled even tighter. And so it was a vicious cycle of like, of like pulling and screaming, and then pulling harder, and then screaming harder. And that went on, sadly, for a good 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, because, you know, we were like, her fingers are so little, we can't pry it open. And we just have to let her like finish her thing. And so we're like, say it, stop it. But clearly she didn't understand us. And so that went on for a bit until she relaxed her grip. There was little to nothing that we could do. I know Andre is making out to be a really good parent so far. Um, but, you know, just to begin with this thought, right? Now, how many of you have ever felt that way, you know? In that moment, I was looking at her pulling her hair 
And there was little to nothing that I could do. There was little to nothing I could do. You know? I just had to watch her and let her finish her thing. Yeah? But I don't know how many of you have ever felt that way. You know, maybe it could be uh, in relation to your parenting. This feeling of not being in control, this feeling of like helplessness, powerlessness, not being able to do anything to remedy a situation, to fix a problem, to direct a person to do something else. I don't know how many of you have also felt that way in this past year, this feeling of powerlessness, helplessness, and not being able to do much. And even so, with this sudden pause, right, you know, it feels so inconvenient. We, as a church, we're gaining such momentum. We just finished a brilliant vision Sunday. You know, I just wrote out the three new core pursuits. I won't ask you to recite them because, you know, chances are you might break my heart. But, uh, you know, he says we the three core pursuits. Very, very important. Listen to the, 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 the teaching from last week. But, you know, it feels like we're getting momentum. People are coming back. Life groups are growing. We're doing a whole bunch of new stuff. And then we hit this, uh, you know, this, this uh, hindrance, this roadblock. Feels as though, you know, there is little to nothing that we can do. It seems as though the, the goal line is pushed further and further into the distance. Now, we have it in our hearts to regather in June, but if I can be honest, even thinking about that, thinking about what I just said, you know, I, I can't give you any guarantees or any assurances. I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I just don't know how things are going to pan out. I just don't know what the future holds, what the future looks like. I just don't know. And we can't seem to predict the future, much less control it. But what if that's okay? What if that's okay? What if it's okay to not know? What if it's okay to go, I don't know, but it's okay? What if this season of uncertainty is actually tutoring us in God and His ways? What if this loss of control that we are all experiencing collectively as a society, not just as individuals, all of us are experiencing this kind of loss of control as a result of the coronavirus, is one of the best things to happen to us spiritually. It's one of the best things to happen in our spiritual formation and growth. This feeling of uncertainty, this loss of control. And so for today, my message title is this, Living in Holy Uncertainty. Living in Holy uncertainty. And this is what I endeavor to look into today. You know, uh, we are taking a pause from our teaching series, and we do have plans for us to resume that uh, next week, uh, barring some uh, adjustments. But uh, you know what? I thought to bring a pastoral word to you today, even as we take a, our first pause, uh, the, the first service you know, in our pause, to encourage you, to help you, you know, make sense of what uh, we are going after as a church. I'll read a uh, couple of passages of scripture together before we begin this time in prayer. Reading from Exodus chapter 13. Now this is the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness. It says this in God's word. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Reading also from Luke 23, this is Jesus' final words before he gives of his life. In Luke 23, Jesus on the cross says this, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
when he had said this, he breathed his loss. Let us begin in prayer. Father, this morning we look to you in prayer. We look to you as the source of all that is good in our life. We look to you also as the creator of all things. He who holds all things together. We look to you, Father. And God, we say our trust, our whole trust is in you. Not in the things of the world, not in our skills or know-how. We desire to place our trust in you. So God, we pray that even in this time of uncertainty where we have seemingly no control, where we are indeed out of control, God, we pray that our trust and our faith will be rooted not in the systems of the world, but be rooted in you and your kingdom. And God, we ask even as we explore this topic, your words together, won't you speak to us, we pray. Lord, I pray for all who are watching at home. Spirit of God, come upon them right now in power, in glory. Let your presence, almighty God, fill every home this morning. We thank you for this exploration. We thank you for your presence in this place. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now, you're a business owner affected by previous or new measures. You're trying your best to keep things together, but you're uncertain about how long more you can go on, how long more you can sustain your business. You just lost your job, received a pay cut, or been told that the promotion or increment that was due your way is now being put off into the distance because of economic uncertainties. You're engaged, but instead of walking down the aisle in your idyllic location, your wedding now looks more like matching masks and Zoom links. You're part of a church, which is by definition a gathering of people, and you have no idea how long it will be until we can all come back together, all of us come back together for worship without any limitations. That feeling in your body, this cocktail of fear, grief, confusion, is uncertainty. Uncertainty is more than the sum of its parts. It's not just uncertainty or the absence of certainty. It is the presence of fear and unnamed dread or a foreboding sense of impending doom. And that's what many of us feel in our bodies today, even with this sudden pause. Now, over a year into the pandemic, the future is still up in the air. Can we agree on that, people? There is just so much that we don't know. We don't know what percentage of the people in the community are actually asymptomatic. We don't know if the virus will fizzle out, mutate, or keep raging on like a fire. We don't know the long-term efficacy of the vaccine or if there are any long-term side effects. And, we, and as we see a new wave emerge globally, we don't know whether this is going to last for months or even years, or possibly even years. And I said a couple of teachings ago that this time, right, this pandemic, what we're experiencing, is what many psychologists define as collective trauma, which is a massive trauma event. All of us are experiencing some kind of trauma as a result of these times. And the hallmark feeling of trauma is a sense of powerlessness, helplessness, not being in control, feeling you like you have no control over your pain. And when people feel powerless, the natural impulse is to grasp for control, to grasp for control. Particularly in a time like this, many of us are trying to find some semblance of certainty or control, right? 
And that's why, you know, there was this wave of people, uh, you know, uh, redoing their house, uh, repacking, you know, putting things in boxes because they're like, I need to be in control of something. The world is coming to parts. My home has to be immaculate. That's what, that, that is the natural impulse. You're trying to grasp for some kind of control. Now, coming back to that verse that we just read in Luke 23, these are the last words of Jesus before his death and eventual resurrection. These are the final words that Jesus will speak after pouring out teaching and instruction to all his disciples. This is the last word. However, here we see Jesus coming to the end of his life. And we have to ask ourselves the question, right? You know, if you were coming to the end of life, you would, and you had a choice or you had certain, you know, you had the cognitive ability to decide what you want to make, what you want to say as your last word, you would be uber duper intentional about it, wouldn't you, right? And so Jesus here, right, this last word, we can assume is what he wants to leave in the minds of his disciples as he is killed. What he wants to give to his disciples to sustain them through the pains of Good Friday, through Holy Saturday into Resurrection Sunday. This is the last word. And it is the word, Father, words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so Jesus' final word and final act was an act of trust and surrender to his Father. And this is the declaration he wants to leave imprinted in the minds of his disciples and executors, posture of trust and surrender to his Father in the garden the first Adam said that God cannot be trusted. And on the cross, the second Adam said, this is my trustworthy father. That is Jesus. Now, the reason I believe that this carries particular weight for us, because, you know, the kind of modern people we are, is because today it's genuinely hard to trust, let alone surrender your whole selves to another person. Because we live in an age of secret agendas being propagated through misinformation and conspiracy theories, don't we? The Edelman Trust Barometer has studied trust for 20 years and believes that it is the ultimate currency in the relationship that all institutions build with their stakeholders. Now, the 2021 study notes an overall sharp decline in trust or organizations to do what is right. It is observed in institutions such as business, NGOs, government, and media. And now a couple of years ago, the study noted that only 19% of millennials survey actually trust other millennials. And so if you are a millennial, you're probably part of the least trusting generation in all of human history, period. Very, very possible. Now, it's not only that because of this distrust that we withdraw emotional, intellectual, and financial resources from one another, and our society ends up more broken and fractured. But because of our inability to trust others, we now look to ourselves and deem ourselves as the only one who is truly dependable or trustworthy. We say basically, it is up to me then, because I can't hand over my heart, my emotions, my future to someone else. I have to take on the job, it is up to me. And this leads to and creates what I call an idol of control. An idol of control. Now, the word idol is immensely strong, right? But I believe rightly so. We typically think of idols as golden calves or certain moral sins. But an idol, at base definition, is anything that supplants God's rightful place 
in your life. It is having our loves, our priorities disordered. And that is to say that you love having a sense of control more than you desire God's leadership. It manifests in different ways, but it's all built on the same foundation, that of fear. Fear of the unknown, a discomfort around uncertainty, and inability to trust God wholeheartedly. And if we can be honest about it this morning, it is one of the core temptations of believers living in first world, educated, upwardly mobile society. We even have a term for it today. We call people who like controlling others and controlling stuff a lot, control freaks, right? You're such a control freak. You're such a control freak. But we often mean it in jest, but think about it for a second, you know, and, and maybe rephrase the tone of voice. You're such a control freak. You're so desired, and you're so caught up in wanting more and more control. Consider the weightiness of that and how damaging it must be to the human soul. Now, control in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? We should take control over abusive and coercive and harmful things. But when we become obsessed with managing our existence to the point that we stop trusting God, depending on Him, we enter into this dangerous territory of seeking to be God ourselves, or seeking at least to be God of our own lives. This idol of control often does not stop with a desire to be sovereign over oneself, but it often bleeds into desiring to be sovereign over others. And the truth is today, our culture is riddled with control mechanisms that facilitate this idolatry. Indulge me for a second. Some use money as an umbrella of control. Money creates space, comfort, and distance between challenges and the annoyances of life. Some use power to control. They work towards positions of influence and authority so that they can create a safe distance between themselves and threats to their ego or emotions. Some use words to control, verbally adjusting other self-perceptions of themselves and identity to keep them in line. You're not that good. You're okay only. Right? And you adjust their self-perception. You manipulate them just enough so that they would feel lesser about themselves, so that you can keep them in line. Some use guilt and shame, some obligation. The list of tools we deploy to manage or control, manipulate people and outcomes of their lives are almost endless. And what fuels and empowers this need for control ultimately boils down to fear, fear of being disappointed, fear of circumstances not panning out, fear of missing out or losing out. David Branner says this uh, in his book. He says this, Fearful people live within restrictive boundaries. People who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. They attempt to control themselves and they attempt to control their world. Often despite their best intentions, this spills over into efforts to control others. The fearful person may appear deeply loving, but fear always interferes with the impulse toward love. Energy invested in maintaining safety and comfort always depletes energy available for love of others. And doesn't this ring through, right? And parents out there, doesn't this, you know, even speak to our natural impulse of wanting to control our kids, wanting to shape their outcomes, wanting to plan and chart what they do for their careers, what they do in their lives. You know, I was, uh, you know, talking to a counselor recently and he was sharing with me that he's counseling uh, these siblings. There are four of them, they are all professionals, lawyers and doctors, but they are all depressed. And he found out along the way that it was because when they were younger, Parents, you know, well-meaning parents said to them, in my house, you can only be a doctor or a lawyer. 
And all of them eventually became doctors and lawyers, but they are depressed because it isn't what brings them fulfillment. It isn't what they're wired for. And in our attempt to control, well-meaning as it may be, is in fact antithetical to what love truly is. It's a desire to control, natural tendency. It bleeds into even the way we relate with people. And I would even suggest God. In his book, Divine Commodity, this is by far the most haunting quote I've ever come across. It says this, and it's, it's this desire that we all have in our hearts, but we are often uh, fearful of even articulating it. Sky Jaitani in his book, Divine Commodity, says this, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity, that which I... That which I utilize, right? The base idea behind commodity is that it has utility to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. And the reason why many of us are disillusioned with God is because we view God as a commodity. And commodity, the base idea behind commodity is that it has only value if it has utility. And when God fails to be used by you for your purposes, you deem him without value. We're seeking to control God. Are you with me, people? Control is an illusion, people. The more we seek to mitigate risk by seeking power, the more we drive people away and distance ourselves from God. Now, there's this stunning contrast between two stories in Genesis. Genesis 11 and 12. We know 11 is about the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel, not the Vincenzo one. Babel, you know, the... (laughs) I'm sorry, I just revealed that I watched Korean dramas. Hey, no judgment here. Right, right. It's about man's pride, right, and ambition in Genesis 11. And Genesis 12 is the calling of Abraham. You know, Abraham. And I would love for you to see this contrast between God's calling and man's pride, control, and ambition. In Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, it says in, the, in Scripture in that account that they said to each other, in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, in Genesis 11, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. In my definition of this, is, or my interpretation is that it's all about our effort. It's all about our work. It's all about what we can do as a people. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you. Gen 11, come, let us build ourselves a city. In Gen 12, I will make you. God, I will make you into a great nation. Gen 11, let us make a name for ourselves. Gen 12, I will make your name great. It's the story of Abraham. It's the story of us all. And if the Tower of Babel, it's one of the core human temptations. And that is that we all have somewhat of a desire to want to be like God and control the world and not have to rely on God. We lean to 11 sometimes. But despite our best efforts at playing God, things still slip through our hands. Life is still unpredictable. It cannot be tamed, and God will not fit into a bottle. Now, is there a better way to live than endlessly grasping for more control over circumstances that are ever-shifting, that are unpredictable and untamable, or seeking to control others, even God? 
I'd like to propose to you this morning that the antidote for spirit control is a spirit of surrender. It's a spirit of surrender. Now, surrender is that beautiful posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our own lives and invite the one who rightfully belongs on it. Instead of seeking sovereignty over ourselves, we trust the one who is over all things. He who has created all things, he who holds all things together, we put our whole trust on him. And I don't know whether you have met people on opposite ends of the spectrum, people who live a life of surrender. No, chances are, or the ones I've met, they're filled with such joy and such peace and such settledness and such contentedness. And I've met people who are controlling, people who desire to be in control, to be in power, to seek to control the events in their life, the people in their life. And on the other hand, they are anxious and frenetic. And I'd like to propose to you that control is incompatible with the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Controlling people do not live with a deep trust and steady confidence in God's goodness and involvement in life. Rather, they are anxious and uptight and on the edge. Controlling people are not full of hope about God's future. Rather, they live in a visual cycle of planning and then eventual disappointment. And above all, controlling people are not loving. They manipulate and bully other people to get them to behave the way they think that they should behave. Rather than love and accept and delight in people as they are controlled or being controlling is incompatible with the core Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. So how did Jesus live a life of surrender, of abandonment to the Father, and resist the idol of control, controlling the outcomes in his life? How did Jesus do this? And the key word is in that first word that he utters in that statement, Father. Ultimately, one word brings Jesus over to trust, and that is that word, Father. Father is Jesus' opening manifesto on the earth. As a teenager, he said, I have to be about my father's business. In the Sermon of the Mount, he speaks of the father 17 times. And he's moving through the Paschal Discourse from John 14 to 16. He uses the word father 45 times. In the next chapter, John 17, when he's giving his high priestly prayer, he uses the word father six more times. And now the last words on his lips as he dies. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At the start of his ministry, the father proclaims, this is my beloved son. And at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus proclaims, this is my trustworthy father. And this line, you know, father into your hands I commit spirit, is this, it comes from this Psalm, Psalm 35, which Jewish children would pray before they go to bed at night. You know, they were like afraid, like we could go anytime. And so they would pray this prayer as a bedtime prayer with their fathers before they went to bed. So have that image in mind. Like little boy, kneeled at the side of bed, his father next to him, and praying that psalm, praying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is the picture of Jesus' trust on the cross. Jesus' relational trust to the Father. And that as he jumped into that empty void, as he went into the great unknown, quite literally, he had every confidence that his father would catch him. Notice here that Jesus didn't just say this with like gritted teeth or with a soft whimper. Scripture tells us that he proclaimed it with a loud voice. 
If you knew anything about crucifixions and the way it affected the body anat- anatom- anatomy, where the way it affected the body, la, right? <laughs> you would know that people who are crucified, they died by suffocation, by asphyxiation. And so at some point, the body, right, the hands and the feet, will not be able to support the breathing that has to happen on the cross. And so scholars would note that Jesus, in order to perform this loud cry, had to muster up every ounce of energy in him in order to shout, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so notice that level of intentionality. It was on purpose. He wanted to preach this one final word. And so he summons all of his strength and cries out a word of absolute trust and surrender. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Catholic thinker and writer, Henry Nouwen? A few of you? I like Henry Nouwen. I apologize, give me a second, because my iPad is uh, running out of battery. Oh, there is my missing notes. Thank you, Pastor Joy. Uh, Sorry, give me a second. You see, we all... You know, things are out of control, right? You know, like, because I put my iPad to charge last night and for some reason, it didn't charge, you know. Things are unpredictable. You cannot be in control all the time. Amen, hallelujah. Andre just turned it into a preaching point. <laughs> all right. Now, this is a brilliant story of uh, the Catholic thinker and writer, Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is one of my uh, most favorite authors and uh, I think he has such a way of conveying, you know, the deep things of the soul of the kingdom. Now, Henry Nouwen, you know, well into... Uh, you know, his later years, he, the story goes, he took on a sabbatical. And he gave, you know, one of his goals of the sabbatical was to learn how to trapeze. So he went and he was a part of uh, learning the trapeze from a troop of flyers. I have this uh, picture up of Henry Nouwen. I got it from the internet. Learning the trapeze, folks. Learning the trapeze. Now, it, it may seem like such an odd thing, right, for a brilliant academic thinker to do. But given that his life, right, the story goes, was haunted by this struggle for control, for perfection, it makes perfect sense. He wanted to bask in the reality of the metaphor of hanging in mid-air and learning to be caught by someone else. And now the, the story goes that that moment of swinging out, letting go and remaining perfectly still, extending himself and waiting to be caught by someone else, felt like his entire life's existential struggle was captured in a moment. The let go trust that he would be caught. Now his key insight was this, that in order to be caught safely, the person being caught must stay completely dead still as he reaches out. They must surrender control, placing total trust in the catcher's ability to catch. And isn't that such a metaphor for what life is to be about? what this idea of surrender actually is. is to put the full weight of our trust on God. The certainty of his character, his good intent and will toward us. We had this definition of faith some weeks ago that it's not about the certitude of outcomes, but the certainty of God, his good will, his intent toward us. John Albert, another pastor, picking up on this trapeze story, writes this. The word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that a trapeze artist has to let go of, comes from the ancient Greek trapeza, meaning table. About the only time it is used in the New Testament is when the writer claims that Jesus gathers his friends around the table, the trapeza, 
what we now call the communion table and teaches them that he will have to let go of his life for them and that the only way to hang on to life is to let it go. Then he climbs the cross and lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours with his hands stretched out, not moving a muscle, and cries out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He breathed. When he did that, he was saving us and he was teaching us about trust. Here's the leap. God comes to you and says, let go. Will you let go? Will you let go? Now, I've recently been inspired by the story of uh, Elizabeth Elliot. I'm sure many of you know who Elizabeth Elliot is. Elizabeth Elliot was a young missionary in Ecuador when members of, her, of a violent Amazonian tribe savagely speared her husband, Jim, and his four colleagues. Incredibly and prayerfully, Elizabeth then took her 10-month-old daughter, a snakebite kit, Bible, and journal, and proceeded to live in the jungle with the very people who killed her husband. And long story short, compelled by her friendship and forgiveness, many came to faith in Jesus. Now, what a life of surrender. What a life of devotion. What a life that jumps into the void of uncertainty with courage, knowing that her father is with her. Now, this is captured in the writings. I have a few quotes from Elizabeth's writings. She writes, God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something better. She writes this, I have one desire now, to live a life with reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my strength and energy into it. And the last one is my favorite. Leave it all in the hands that were wounded for you. That is Elizabeth Elliot. Now, one of the reasons why I find Jesus so compelling is the way he approaches his disciples. It's the way he uh, lived his life as a teacher on the earth. And if you notice scripture, and notice particularly the way of Jesus, is that it's always a way of invitation. Jesus calls for his followers, come, follow me. It's always an invitation. The Bible talks about, come, taste and see that I am good. In Revelation, it talks about how Christ stands at the door of our hearts, knocking. It's invitational. No coercion, purely invitational. The invitation here for us, you know, through this teaching is this. To one, come to peace with uncertainty. To come to peace with uncertainty. Hear me in saying this, life will always be uncertain. Life will always be uncertain. The Bible tells us that, that there will be trouble in our lives. Comfort is the exception. Trouble is the norm. To combat, you know, through this coming to peace, to combat the restlessness and uneasiness that we all feel inside of us today. To not find our peace in things being resolved, but to find our peace in the storm. And that is the promise of Christ. That is the promise of Christ. That is not a peace that comes in the absence of conflict, but it's a peace that can be steadfast and present in the midst of conflict, in the midst of the storm. That is a kind of transcendent peace that is available for all who call Christ their Lord. It's a peace that is available for you today. And with that peace, you can quite literally come to peace with uncertainty, to come to a gentle, quiet, Sabbath rest. The next invitation is this, to relinquish control. To relinquish control. Hear me in saying this, control is an eventual path. It's an eventual path towards disappointment and disillusionment. But surrender, this beautiful letting go and grabbing onto God, it's filled with wonder, 
It's filled with awe. It's filled with stories, just like what we've heard from Elizabeth Elliot. And so the last invitation is this, to discover what God can do with a surrendered life, with a surrendered life. I have a final quote from you from John Tyson. He says this, this starts off with this amazing line. St. Ignatius of Loyola said that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Sit with that for a moment. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that God, that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Now, until we are convinced of this, we will seek to control our own lives. But knowing that God sees all the moments and concerns of our lives, is committed to working all things together for our good, and cares about us deeply, gives us the confidence to let go. When we trust God, we are not surrendering to chaotic forces or even blind chance. We are surrendering to love. And that act of surrender allows us to be caught in an embrace that will never let us go. Now you might have noticed uh, in my uh, teaching that I've on purpose left it really open-ended. I have not spent a lot of time talking about the stuff that we desire to control, stuff that we need to let go. And here's the invitation. The invitation is to fill in the blank for yourselves. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What, are you, what do you need to commend and commit to the Lord this day? It could be certain relationships. It could be your careers. It could be your desire for certain things. It could be certain outcomes that you're hoping for, that you have tried your best. You have you know, sought for control. You have put in the work and effort to see it come to naught. And perhaps it's time today to come back to a quiet, gentle Sabbath rest that is only present in a surrendered life. That is the invitation this morning. Now, you know, I have two more minutes and I, I won't get to uh, my last few points, but, you know, I've been really pondering about and reading uh, the story of uh, Israel in, in the desert. And in the desert, we all know that they were tested in many ways. And it's, it's in many ways, you know, a, a, a picture of the Christian life that we will be tested at times on uh, route to uh, the promise. Now, you know, uh, one of the, the teachers that I, 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 I uh, reference often, his name is John Mark Comer, he lists down you know, three things that, or three invitations that God was giving the children of Israel through the wilderness, through the desert. And I know many of you are familiar with the story, and so I won't go into the text. But there are three experiences that God was inviting the children of Israel to through the desert. This time of wondering and uncertainty. I believe it's going to speak to us. First is to let his testing, God's testing and teaching, form them into the people who were ready for the next chapter of their story in the promised land. Two, to live gratefully, one day at a time on manna. And three, to come around the presence and trust him to lead and guide them through the desert to Canaan. But what did happen? What happened, you know? The children of Israel, we know, Historically, they did not trust nor followed him. They did not let God's teaching and testing form them, but they were stiff-necked people, and they did not live gratefully. They grumbled again and again and again and again. Now, we today, 21st century Singapore church, we can learn so much from Israel's journey in the desert. It was a time of transition from Egypt to Canaan. It was a time of wandering and uncertainty. This involuntary desert that we're experiencing now. And I believe today God extends the three invitations to us as a people. First off, to let God 
This is a charge to let him form us into the people who are ready for whatever is next. Through this time of uncertainty and wondering, to open up our inner hearts to the work of the Spirit. Two, to live gratefully one day at a time. And three, to camp around God's presence and trust him to lead and guide us through COVID-19. Now, isn't it interesting that when God gives, when, when God, uh, you know, God with the children of Israel, he didn't give them a map nor a schedule. He gave them his presence to guide them. I don't know how many of you have ever been on the guided tour. You know, the staff and I were on a hiking trip like some year, two years ago, two years ago probably, you know, and the guide, he started leading us and we didn't know where we we're going. And at some point we wondered, we were, we were scared for our lives because it's like we, we are moving further and further and further and further away from where we we're staying and like the guy was pretty silent and he didn't say anything and we were scared for our lives. That's how it feels like to have a guide. Now, of course, we didn't know this guide, but we know God. We have the benefit of scripture. We have the benefit of the stories of all, of stories that we're experiencing now, and we can be certain of his goodness. We can be certain of his goodwill and intent toward us. And so in this time of uncertainty, but more so than that, in the midst of the uncertainties of life itself, trust that God is your guide. He does not give you a map nor a schedule. He gives you his presence, himself. And perhaps that's the whole point of uncertainty. That's the whole point of the paradoxes in the Bible is that we will not lean on mere formulas alone. We will not look to a map or a schedule or a program, but we will look to his presence. Maybe this period of uncertainty is meant to draw us into a deeper surrender intimacy with our God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That invitation is presented to you today. Into your hands, what? Into his, his hands, what will you commit today? Amen. Can we stand in this place? Amen. 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 Now, you know, I think there is much to ponder even as we consider uh, this idea of surrender. It's, it's huge, it's big, right? You know, I think it's one of the core struggles of my spiritual life, you know, moving along and traversing along this path called life and finding that, hey, there are like more and more pieces of my life that are seemingly unsurrendered to God. And I think this is a lifelong pursuit, right? But for this period, for this time, even as we're grappling with all the uncertainties and we are, you know, feeling the anxiety and the fear that comes from a lack of control. I'd like to ground our community this morning with a passage of scripture. And I'll read and pray over you today, Psalm 40. And it's not, it's, just, it's not a time where we, you know, go on an expository thing and we do some exegetical work on this. But I would like for us as a community to look to God's word today, to come to that opening line, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry. I pray that that is the reality of your life, that you will wait patiently for God and that you will experience his voice in your life. But this entire psalm is rich, it's beautiful. And I pray that even as we go through this psalm together, 
we pray it out loud as, an, as a liturgy, not as a teaching text. Let's pray this and let's declare this to God as a community together. I believe something powerful is going to happen in our heart. I believe this is going to ground us. It's going to keep us steady even as we traverse through the uncertainties of life. Shall we pray this together, people? All of you at home, the passage is going to come up on screen and I invite you to pray along with us. Let's pray Psalm 40 together. On the count of three. One, two, three. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in a scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Let us pray. Lord, we pray indeed those words. Here, my God, here I am. I desire to do your will. Your words, your ways are within my heart. And God, I pray today for your grace to be upon me, upon our community, that we may push through this need for control we may, in this atmosphere of uncertainty, grow to be a people who learn to trust you wholeheartedly. That we will grow to be a people that won't seek our assurance, our confidence in the things of the world, in our own ability and know-how. But we were like men and women in the Bible, follow you, walk with you, so that we may experience your voice, your tender comfort and embrace in trial and tragedy. We will walk with you, O oh God. And that's our prayer. We will walk with you, O oh God. Not just for you. We won't just look for things from you. But we will walk with you, O oh God. So Lord, we pray. Do a deep work in our hearts even as we pause as a church for these few weeks. As we gather in our homes. Lord, we know that your spirit knows no limits. Your spirit knows no bounds. And God, we ask for your spirit to do a deep work in our people. Even as we're gathered in a manner like this, God, do a deep work in us. Cause us to be a people that look to you this day. We ask and pray these things in your name. And of God's people say, Amen.